Well, good morning, and thank you for the invitation to be here. I have been looking forward to it for some time, and uh, thanks to Scott and Laura, and we've known Scott and Laura for longer than we want to admit, because we're not, we're not that old. We're not that old. Couldn't be. Uh, Scott's that old. I'm not. He's the senior statesman. But uh, thank you again for having us, and uh, it's definitely a, a needed topic for discussion. There's a lot of assumed values and virtues in our culture and in our churches, and until we take them out of the luggage and kind of unravel them and unpack them and take a look at what we're assuming to be true, we don't really get down to the topics and the ideas that we really need to talk about. So uh, it's overcast outside, a little drizzly, perfect day for a deep discussion on (laughs) brooding philosophy and history and things of that nature uh, today. Uh, First topic this morning for about 30 minutes or you know, an hour, hour and a half, whatever it takes, is the idea of a secular age uh, and what that means, to get to know the age in which we live. This first lesson, I'll just admit up front, is almost absent of any kind of scriptural reference. This isn't a a Bible study, this first lesson, because we're looking at what's going on historically and philosophically in the world we live in right now. And then after that, the goal will be, now what are we going to do about it, will be the rest of our time. Uh, so, because I don't like to do an entire lesson without a scripture in it, let me just throw one at you completely out of context. Uh, there's a passage in First Chronicles 12, 32, where they're listing the mighty men of David. And there's just a little throwaway description of the men of Issachar uh, that I, th- I find interesting. It says, they were men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. That's odd, because usually in the Bible when you say, who knows what to do, The answer is people who know the word of God, the law of God, who worship God, that's the right answer. But here, there's a different sense of knowing what to do. The question is, how do we do all those things I just mentioned at this time? How do we live godly lives in this age? These men of Issachar apparently recognize that every age and every generation presented its own challenges to how to apply God's word. Same law they lived under, but here at this moment needed some wisdom and judgment. Well, that's what we want to accomplish this morning, is to consider what kind of world do we live in now, and what wisdom can we glean to live out God's will in this world. We often say that we live in a secular age, and I have found that when you use words like secular and religious, people say, well, everybody knows what you mean when we say that, which actually means nobody knows what we mean when we say that. Uh, And I ran into this in a personal way. Uh, I was teaching a class uh, for a school of biblical studies up at Owasso near Tulsa, and they had asked me to do a class on world religions. And so I said, oh, yeah, sure, I can do that. And I get out my notes, and like a good good teacher, I put up a slide, and I'm going to fill up the first slide with the definition of the word religion. Religion, noun, dot, dot, dot. And I stared at that screen and tried like seven or eight times to write a definition of the word religion. And it's just unbearably difficult to do when you think about it. Uh, A set of convictions. Well, I got lots of convictions. Uh, Scott and I both know that the New York Yankees are the finest sports franchise to have ever existed. (laughs) 
for example. That's a conviction that was given to me by my father. It's a traditional conviction. He grew up a Mickey Mantle fan, being an Oklahoma kid, and that was a big deal to him. And I, I heard that groan that I assume was assent. That's how you say amen here, apparently. <laughs> right? So that's a set of convictions. Is that a religion? Well, it's not what I was covering in world religions, so apparently not. Uh, well, it's a, a way of life. What is it? I mean, what are we talking about? What do you mean a way of life? Well, it's a transcendent ideal. Again, what isn't? Uh, uh, it's a belief in God. Oh, wait a second. Buddhists don't believe in a personal divine being. Is that a religion? Well, okay. Uh, and, and you just keep going and you find out it's just nearly impossible to write down a definition of a word like religion that includes all the things you think ought to be religions and excludes all the things that you think are probably not religions. How do you include Buddhists and exclude Jedis, right? It's, it's extraordinarily difficult to figure out how to write that definition. And that's kind of what happens with this word secular as well. They're related. So let's just try to define these words because religion and secular in our culture are seen as opposites. And we need to know where, does, where do those definitions come from. The word religio uh, in the Latin comes to us as a word meaning habitual piety or virtue. The word habitual there is going to be very important for, I suspect, the next lesson where we talk about what kind of behaviors shape us in the way that we live, right? So the idea of religio was about habitual piety or virtue. It was the way that you lived your life on a regular basis. But that's pretty vague, right? Habitual piety or virtue. It was very broad. Thomas Aquinas in the medieval period would write, every deed insofar as it is done in God's honor, belongs to religion. If you were a good gardener and you hold your field to God's glory, then that was a religious enterprise. Right? That's the way the word was used in the medieval period. The word religion for them wasn't um, a, a uh, genus of which Christianity was one species, if we can talk about biology for a second. They wouldn't have thought there's religions, and then there's Christianity, Islam, Judaism, whatever. That's not the way they thought of the word religion. Religion was the way that you lived your life. Everybody had some sort of piety and devotion and habit that guided their life. And that was the sense of that word. So all God-honoring life in the medieval period was considered religion. Church leaders had the kind of religion that might be called sacred duties. If you were a priest or a monk or some sort of person in a, in a very obviously religious, as we'd call it, role, right? So you have the word there. Uh, if you were in a church function, then you had sacred duties in your religion. Your regular practice might be uh, seven times of daily prayer or offering the mass or things like this. Everybody else was still supposed to be religious, but they had temporal or what's called secular duties, taking care of the fields, running the government, uh, protecting your children, building homes. These were still considered forms of religious life, but they were called the secular. They were holy in a different way. Both of them were considered methods and tools of religion. Does this make sense so far? In our culture, there's religion and then there's secular life. In medieval culture, secular life was one way in which you could be religious. 
The other was to be, you know, again, a priest or a monk or something like that, to be a sacred function. Okay. So where does that leave us in terms of power? It turns out all the great historical dramas play out in terms of power, and that's where our story begins. The state in the medieval period existed as God's secular minister. Someone needs to take care of the field, collect the taxes, make sure uh, there's water running to the city and so forth. And those people, they work for God. What they do is religious and is in God's world, but they would have been thought of as the secular rulers. The church then had its own religious set of duties. The, the sacred uh, responsibilities of having the mass and leading the people in prayer and reading the scripture and so forth belonged to the priest and the monks and so forth. And so the church existed as God's sacred minister. So again, you see that there's not a secular world and a religious world. The whole world is religious. Some people are doing higher religious functions like sacred things, but the guy taking out your garbage was also doing a religious function. He was cleaning up God's world. He was doing a secular duty. And that's the way they use those words. Now, which one ranks higher? It doesn't take a lot to guess that the folks of this time are going to say, well, the sacred certainly outranks the secular. And what that meant in the medieval period was that if you lived at that time, the church, the secular, or the sacred minister, outranked the state, the secular minister. Okay? So if you wanted to be the king of your province or governor of your region, you needed the authority and uh, the permission, the backing of the state to exist. Uh, there's a story told, and I always forget the names on this one. Oh, this is why I should write things down. Anyway, the story is told of the king who was made to, he, he tried to make himself king in France uh, without the permission of the Pope, and uh, his people kind of revolted. And so he travels to the Vatican, and the Vatican, the Pope makes him wait in the lobby for hours to remind him of who was actually in charge. And then after he's, you know, paid his taxes. Uh, he goes ahead and gives him permission to, to be the, the king. And that's kind of the order of the world as it existed. The people in the secular branch of things didn't like that. They wanted a world free of that sacred structure. Okay, And you can understand why, to a degree, the medieval church had become very corrupt in terms of morality uh, this is something that Martin Luther is going to complain about when he travels to the Vatican. He says there's just corruption everywhere. So you can understand in one hand why they might say, well, we don't like the way this is set up. People in charge aren't very good people. Okay, fair enough. But their solution to that wasn't really about being better rulers or being good people. They wanted power. And so what I want to suggest to you is the world that we live in now is at the end of about a 500-year power grab where the people that were the secular ministers, the secular powers, wanted to take power away from the sacred. Kind of give you the story and a couple of bullet points. Uh, Henry VIII is in a marriage in 1534, and he doesn't want to be in that marriage. Now, Henry VIII is a king, but I don't believe it ever occurred to him that he could end his marriage without the permission of the church. You see how the world is different? Who controls 
the government? Who writes the rules? Who condones or dissolves marriages? The church. Not even the king. That's right. The, the Catholic Church does. And I don't believe it ever occurred to Henry VIII that it could be any other way. What did occur to Henry VIII was, well, I could have my own church. <laughs> I could be the head of a church, and then, if I were the head of the Church of England, then I could grant myself an annulment or a divorce or whatever I wanted several times over. So do you see that it, it's a very subtle point. He doesn't believe that can happen without a church. That's the world they lived in. The church does that. The idea that he has that's going to fester is that what if we could slowly kind of pull some of that power over onto our side of the aisle? And so he establishes the Church of England and makes himself the head, more or less, of that and begins to kind of embrace some of that power. Um, John Locke is a philosopher of that next century. Locke is a deeply religious person. But if you read Locke, Locke says that one of his chief goals was to identify which works belonged on the religious side of the aisle, the sacred side of the aisle, and which one belonged to the state. He says, because until we get that sorted out to remember which one's which, we're never going to know how to live, and we're going to have chaos. Now, from Locke, who's a very religious person asking that question, you go to Voltaire, who is an overtly atheistic person, asking that same question. See how we're subtly moving from, maybe we could take a little power, maybe we could make a little distinction, maybe we could make a lot of distinction. And then we start to actually experiment in government building in the next century based on that set of distinctions. The first and the second ought to be known to you, the American and French Revolution. I know nobody likes this part, but this is true. America was, and I'm going to say this kindly, I really like America, so don't throw anything at me, okay? America was the first nation in history established on a philosophical mistake. There's a lot of wonderful things about America, but one of the things that the founders, I'll prove this to you in a minute, so stay with me, the founders believed in is that this separation that needed, that had begun to be happening, needed to come to fruition. Americans did it in a very, like Locke, in a kind of religious way. It was a predominantly religious culture. They just kind of wanted to sort things out, by and large. The French, a little less so. They were a little more aggressive in saying, actually, we could sort that religious stuff all the way out altogether. Voltaire, for example. But what you end up with then is governments built on a new set of rules. That there is a clear distinction between the secular world and the religious. I'll give you an example. History, I believe, this is a quote, history, I believe, furnishes no example of priest-ridden people maintaining a free civil government. This marks the lowest grade of ignorance of which their civil as well as religious leaders will always avail themselves for their own purposes. Nothing good about a culture with priests in it. Any guesses on who says this? Some radical living in his mother's basement, writing on the internet? <laughs> Thomas Jefferson, okay? Thomas Jefferson. This is one of the ideals that American civilization is built on. That religion was just a little bit dangerous. 
French would say religions may be a lot dangerous. Americans would say it's a little bit dangerous. But both had the same idea. With me so far? Okay. And so the result is we get the modern definitions that now you have grown up in your entire lives. Now, why, why a big, long history lesson? So my dad and I, dad's a preacher, and we argue a little bit from time to time, imagine that, about kind of what's, what's wrong with the world. And dad says, you know, the problem goes back 50 years. And I say, dad, the problem goes back 500 years. And, and then the apostle Paul says, well, there's this guy named Adam. But, but anyway, <laughs> we got lots of problems, and they go back a long way. But the question is just how far back. We started to notice some decades ago that something had changed in a way that was destructive, and it started to bother us. But the decision to make those changes are much older and started with a set of ideas that we now live in just as assumptions. Okay? So when public life was emptied of God, we started calling that secular. Public life, the life you live, where you work, you go to school, uh, you vote, you do all the things you do in public life is the secular world now. The ordinary world. And for many people, the real world. Want a pet peeve to set me off tomorrow? This will be fun. When I'm done preaching, this, people do this to me once. I let people know that this bothered me, and so now I have people at church who do it on purpose. This is fun. They'll leave the auditorium after Sunday morning. Good job, preacher. Back to the real world now. <laughs> this is the real world, right? Gospel is the real world. Church is the real world. But in the modern world, We've come to believe the real world is ordinary life. It's the job, it's the family, it's the, the school, it's the politics, it's what's on the news, it's what's on Facebook. That's the real world. And then if you want to be religious in today's world, that's actually okay. No one's got a problem with you being religious privately. If you want to have religious convictions in your personal and private devotion, nobody's going to bother you. Right up until it interferes with the real world, the secular world. This starts to feel like the world you live in? Did we get there from 500 years? Okay. And that is the struggle the church now lives in. Do you see how we need to know the times? Because there's a fundamental difference between living in a world where the church is at the top of the hierarchy ordering all of life and one where the church is in a closet trying to be quiet so people will leave us alone. Those are very different worlds. But we live in one of those, and those are the definitions we've come to assume that we've learned as, we learned as children, we're teaching our children, and the meanings of that just continue to, to snowball down the hill and the significance of that. Public life is supposed to be secular in the sense of not pertaining to God, faith, or religion. Private life may or may not be religious as long as it stays private life. These are the rules. Okay. Um, give me another quote. This is a fun one. Okay. A uh, lot, lot in the news. Let's see if I can make a joke about politics without getting in trouble. A lot in the news about wall building right now. Okay. A few hundred years ago, wall building was also in the news, but it was a different wall. Okay? Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declare that their legislature make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation 
between church and state. Anyone want to guess who wrote this one? Also Thomas Jefferson, as it turns out. This was a letter written to a Baptist group in the 1700s, and the question is, what's going to happen to churches now? And Thomas Jefferson says, hey, this is great for you guys. We're not getting rid of you. In fact, we're going to protect you. We're just going to build a wall. And church life and religious life is going to be on one side. See what he said in that first line? I, I emphasize it up there. Solely, religion is a matter which lies solely between a man and his God. If you want to be religious privately, old President Tom says that's fine. And modern culture agrees. Sir? Yeah, well, if you want your life out of the eye and scrutiny of the preacher, right, one way to do that is to say, go over there, <laughs> right? There is a fair, I mean, it's not, it's not accidental that the whole discussion we had started with a guy who wanted an annulment to his marriage, right? But if you want to make some moral decisions that even the corruption of the church might object to, one way to do that is to kind of scoot them out of the way. But the result, whatever they wanted, whatever their intention was, I mean, I'm, I'm a little cynical about Thomas Jefferson, but let's say he was really well-intended. Let's say he really meant all that. He really wanted to protect religious people by keeping the government out of it and so forth. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I don't want the American people to, do, to vote on my doctrine that I believe in. I mean, there, there's some nice things about that separation that I enjoy. But the fact is it has created a world that is fundamentally different than has ever existed before. And the church has to relearn how to operate in that world and what to do about it. And that's the challenge that we're, we're facing now. So let me just kind of summarize with these two statements that I think really capture it. Medieval culture was embedded inseparably in the sacred world. You woke up in the morning in God's world. You did your job in God's world. You went to bed at night in God's world. The sun, moon, and stars existed in God's world. Time was God's time. My body was a body of God's making in God's image to bring God glory. My marriage was to the glory of God to celebrate a mystery of God in the gospel. Everything about my life, top to bottom, was embedded in God's world. And we might have done a terrible job of that. Let me just say, I'm not suggesting we go back to medieval period, it was pretty bad too, right? We did a rotten job of doing that. But conceptually, that was how they lived their lives. Um, if you ever get a chance, go, go on the interwebs and uh, look up some of the old Celtic prayer books. And they have some prayers for uh, women and mothers. And they're just magnificent little prayers that obviously tell you what people were doing while they said these prayers. As I make this bed, so order my life as I fold this linen. As I stoke this fire for breakfast, so kindle the faith within my heart. Things like this, that every element of life was tied to something sacred. Okay. Modern culture has separated the sacred world from the secular world and elevated the secular as most essential to human flourishing. What's going to make the world better? Better secular government. What's the most important thing that you do? Vote for an elected leader and a secular government who's going to pass policies that improve your life. That's the real world, or so we're told. Does that make sense? That's, that's the world that we're being told exists. That's how change happens. If you want to know 
Who is going to shape the culture? No one says the church. We say the government, which is why we're so passionate about who's running the government. There was a poll done a while back. In the 50s, parents were asked, what concerns you the most? What would upset you the most about the person your son or daughter brings home to dinner and says, this is the person I'm going to be engaged to and I'm going to get married? What's your worst fear? And in the 50s and 60s, uh, it was kind of the things you might have guessed. Somebody from a different religion... I don't bring home a Methodist, right? I mean, somebody from a different denomination of group. Or race, of course, was a hot topic at that time. Somebody who looks different than I do. Okay. Want to guess what the number one today was? Same question. Different political party. I don't care if they're Catholic, but let them not be a Republican or let them not be a Democrat. I don't care if they're a Buddhist atheist, but as long as they're not a libertarian, right? That's the fear that people said in, this, in, in answer to that same question. Why? Because that's the one we believe is shaping the world. That's the one we believe matters most to our identity and to the culture that we live in, and we're the most passionate about that. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm a little bit happy that we've settled down on some of the religious wars and fighting and bickering and stuff. That's great. But we've just transferred it. We're not more peaceful. We're just arguing over here now and saying, well, the, the government will sort that stuff out. And that's what matters. So then that leaves us, as we kind of conclude, what are we going to do? We men of Ezekar, and women too, what are we going to do about knowing the times we live in? What are the questions we want to try to answer this weekend into that new world in which we certainly live? Five questions we're going to try to tackle in some form or format, I think, possibly this weekend. Uh, number one, how do we help our children develop faith in that world? Okay. You're going to grow up in a set of assumptions that are being fed to you with breakfast. How do children grow up in that world? Because we grew up in that world too, right? And those assumptions were handed to us. And we're wondering, what do we do about that? Uh, how does church engage the culture? Are we actually just supposed to accept the wall of division and say, well, we're over here, we'll do the private stuff and you do the public stuff? Well, most of us say, no, the church needs to get involved. But How? Are we, going to, are we going to lob rocks through the window and say, listen to us? I mean, what, what's the plan? Or are we all going to move outside of town and, and start the, the free township of churchdom, right? I mean, I, I don't know. We're going to have to talk about that. How do we engage? Uh, what habits will help us maintain faith? And with that, what does church life look like? We're going to talk about ideas and actions that are going to feed on each other. Doing right things are going to help us think right things, and thinking right things is going to help us do right things. And they're going to go back and forth. But we're going to have to change the way we live and think to function in this new world. 